Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Big Sister Hotline is recorded on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Sovereignty of these lands has never been ceded. I pay my respects to Elders past and present. The Hotline is proud to be an ongoing supporter of JIRA, an Aboriginal-controlled community organisation where culture is shared and celebrated. This land always was and always will be Aboriginal and Black Lives Matter. Big Sister Hotline, how can we help? Hello, dear listeners, guys, gals, and non-binary pals. You're listening to the Big Sister Hotline, a weekly podcast offering frank, funny, and feminist advice on life, love, and whether or not you should break up with your no-good Nick boyfriend. Spoiler, the answer is always yes. My guest this week is an award-winning journalist, author, mental health advocate, and media strategist. She's the author of three books, High Sobriety, My Year Without Booze, which explored binge drinking culture, her second book, Happy Never After, which is an examination of the age of anxiety, and her most recent book, When You're Not Okay, A Toolkit for Tough Times, which is a self-care manual for the days when you feel alone, broken, or too weird to be normal, which is me, basically. She joins me now with her lush, dulcet Scottish tones. She is Jill Stark. Thanks for that lovely intro, Clem. I feel like the pressure to sound dulcet and <laughs> interesting. That shouldn't be any pressure for you, Jill. You are <laughs> dulcet and interesting. And I should just say as well that very excitingly, I've been doing this podcast pretty much, I started in February and it's pretty much just gone through all of Victoria's lockdown. And you are sitting in my kitchen the first time in a really long time that I've had anyone actually be a present guest on this show. So exciting to be around real humans again, isn't it? It's wonderful. And yet also... Really oh, weird. Really weird. Really <laughs> and weird. And a bit unsettling, but also lovely. Yes. I would be interested actually to talk to you when we uh, get into the conversation proper mm. about whether or not you had any trouble adjusting to going back into normal. Oh, Clem, I feel like that's going to be my fourth book, to be honest. <laughs> yes, yes, the struggle is real. Lots of things to say about that. So how did you spend lockdown? In the fetal position? No, I, I didn't. Actually, lockdown, so I live alone and just me and my cat Hamish, because if you're Scottish, you have to have Scottish-named cats. It's the law. And I have to say, like, the first lockdown, I find myself surprisingly calm. I think if you live with anxiety daily as I do, and I know that you do as well, um, when your world is suddenly reduced to the basics, you know, eat, sleep, walk, 
call a friend work. Mm. You know, so, some of the stresses of your life kind of go away, all this kind of FOMO of, well, what is everyone doing? Well, no, no one's doing anything. So it was, you know, there's a, a certain degree of simplicity to life under lockdown that I find quite calming. It was very difficult in many ways, you know, obviously feeling quite isolated. My family are all in Scotland, so not knowing when I'm going to see them again. But there was just something in some ways, people who live with anxiety were kind of built for these times. And I was listening to a podcast by Elaine de Baton who said, in many ways, pessimism is the gateway to calm. Mm. And what he meant by that is like, you know, if you spend your life feeling like things are about to fall apart, it doesn't insulate you from suffering, but it kind of reduces the element of panic and surprise when things turn to shit. So for me, it was like, I have spent my whole life worrying about the day that will never happen. And then that day finally happened and we were faced with something on a global scale that was unprecedented. And I felt like I was ready in a way because I think a lot of people were experiencing anxiety perhaps for the first time and had no idea what was happening in their body, what was happening in their mind and what to do with that. Whereas obviously the situation was different from anything I've ever faced before, but the strategies and the skills remained the same. Mm. And so sometimes it's sort of people with lived experience who are the greatest coaches in times of struggle because we've been there, bought the T-shirt and mm. come through the other side of it. So the first lockdown I didn't find to be too difficult. And then the second long lockdown in Melbourne, it got really tough because I think you would have probably experienced as well when you live alone and it was only after 10 weeks of lockdown that they changed the rules to allow single people to have someone in their bubble. And, you know, I enjoy my own company. I love living alone. I love being single and independent, but 10 weeks of every single day and night spending it on your own with the occasional one hour walk Mm. masked with a friend was getting really difficult. And, you know, I was thinking, well, what's wrong with me? I should be stronger than this. It's like, well, as humans, we're not actually designed to live in isolation. We're social animals. So I think it's not surprising that it was a challenge. But once the single person bubble was allowed to happen and I could have my best friend come over a couple of nights a week and just having him over was just a game changer for mm. me. Yeah. This is something that I observed with my friend Alice, who has been on the show a couple of times. You know, that kind of sense that we should be stronger than this. We should be more capable. We should be more robust. All understandable pressures to put on ourselves. But as you say, it's an incredibly challenging thing to ask humans to suffer en masse. I, I understand that there are people out there who do experience touch deprivation for a variety of reasons, some of them ableist and some of them structural. But generally speaking, as a species, humans are tactile. So mm. this sort of enforced touch deprivation en masse was a struggle for everyone. And I think that the difference between this unprecedented time and other unprecedented times, like wartime, for example, is that it's much easier to sort of rally mm. as a community when you can gather around a piano yeah. and sing songs together. And hug each other. And hug I mean, each other. I mean, skin hunger is a real thing. And I, mm. I felt that so deeply, you know, mm. it was sort of an ache, you know, it was like, just want someone to hold me. And it was really difficult. And I think... The way that I coped with that was I did a series of videos um, on my Instagram and Facebook page called um, Riding the Corona Coaster. Mm -hmm. And it was just basically things that I'd learned through, you know, 40 plus years of living with anxiety and applied to that current coronavirus situation. And I think 
one of the videos I did was specifically about self-compassion and it was just never been more important to be kind to ourselves. And, you know, that sort of self-care can seem like a trendy sort of very um, white woman kind of indulgent practice, but actually self-care is self-preservation. It's survival, you know, and I think if you are spending your time and I used to get really frustrated during lockdown, particularly with people from other states. I just don't think understood what we were going through because, you know, the beginning of the lo- the first lockdown, we're all in it together, you know, mm. united country. And then it was like we were getting premiers of other states saying things like Victorians are not welcome here. And, mm. and, and as if we had somehow done something wrong when, you know, I'm sure the same as with your circles. Everyone that I knew was making enormous sacrifices and doing everything that they should be doing. The Prime Minister calling it the Victorian yeah, virus. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's very Trumpian, that kind of yeah. language. But as it went on, and my one of my canaries in the coal mine for my mental health is if you see me kind of unraveling on Twitter, then you know you know that I'm not in a good place. But I'd, I'd been off Twitter for a long time because it's not great for me. But during COVID, it was sort of like that's where you went for the numbers every day. That's where you went to find out how people were doing. And I kind of got sucked into that. And and I was just sort of talking on there about how I was feeling. And I got so many, you know, unsolicited, unhelpful advice from people saying, oh, it's not like the war. Think about, you know, our grandparents and what they survived. All you're being asked to do is sit and watch Netflix. And I was just like, this is profoundly unhelpful mm. to be playing the pain Olympics with people and saying what you're going through is not real enough. It's not, we haven't met the benchmark for grief or sorrow or or loss. And I think I had a lot of people coming to me saying, like, I feel really bad because I've got a partner or I've still got my job or, you know, other people have got a lot, lot worse. And of course, you can always point to someone else in life that is doing it worse than you, but that does not make your suffering invalid. And I think when we fall into that trap of, um, toxic positivity, you know, this yeah. idea that a lot of the sort of wellness influencers just like love light and shining, you know, like just think happy thoughts and be positive. Like that is actually corrosive and dangerous. And when you invalidate your own suffering, it only entrenches it. And yeah. if you don't allow yourself to feel what you're feeling, and I think I, I wrote a piece for The Guardian on the day that Daniel Andrews announced the lockdown was finally lifting and I'm just getting teary even thinking about it now. Mm. I was watching it and I was like, Dan Andrews is crying. I I had friends texting me going, is Dan crying? And I was like, he is. And I was like, because this is a moment. Like, and I was sobbing and then people, all my friends were texting me and Clem is now looking at me and she's crying as well. And I was like, why are we sobbing? And it was because this has been incredibly hard and I think at that moment it was like a damn wall broke Mm. and we were allowed to sort of touch the sides of our pain and and it was the first time like a lot of people gave themselves permission to feel the depth of their own experience. Yep. Oh yeah and I am unexpectedly Mm. welling up now. I remember that day and I remember watching the press conference and not only seeing that Dan Andrews was, was crying but also seeing just trauma etched on his face and thinking that man is going to need to have some serious post-traumatic stress therapy. And I was surprised by my response as well, but you've articulated it perfectly that in watching it, I was ecstatic at first and then I broke down. And, you know, the way you've articulated that, being able to touch the sides of the walls of your pain, it hit me again the other day when I was reading about South Australia going back into mm. or go, or going oh, into lockdown. That press conference felt like reliving trauma. It's only well, 
you never want to say it's only something because it is what it is and it's real regardless of length of time. And as we know, you can never predict how long something will last. But reading about it, I started crying again the other day and and I was sort of thinking to myself, well, why are you crying? This isn't about you this time. It's residual trauma. And I'm interested in, in how we as a community are going to reckon with that collective trauma because it's clearly changed us fundamentally and it's left us with something profoundly painful. I think... And obviously you have to be very careful about using the word trauma and you and I've talked about this repeatedly through this experience of the collective trauma that we as Victorians have gone through and a nation and a globe, I guess, to everyone has experienced some their whole world being sort of turned upside down. But um and I had a few people saying that I was being hyperbolic and it's you know, it's not trauma, you just had to stay home for a few months. And there was actually a trauma counselor who commented on one of my Facebook posts saying this is it is trauma. She's like, I've never seen in all my time as a psychologist more people come to me exhibiting the symptoms of trauma. She said panic buying, the level of anger online, the level of feel, people feeling like they're completely out of control and there's nothing that they can do. There's nothing that we can control and they have no agency over anything. She's like, that's trauma. You know, that mm. what we're experiencing people breaking down and sobbing at press conferences because you realize you've been holding your breath for 16 weeks, you know. And even today, I mean, today is a day where we're on 21 days of zero. And I tweeted this morning because the Victorian government's Department of Health and Human Services always puts out the numbers every day. And they normally put it out at a certain time and it was about an hour late and people were freaking out. And and I just tweeted saying, you know, just when you think you've got over the trauma of waiting for the numbers every day, you find yourself holding your breath waiting again. And it turned out to be another zero. And, you know, even if it wasn't, you have to have confidence that we're not going to go back to where we were. But as you say, like, what is the kind of hangover from what we've gone through it's just sitting there under the surface all the time because this thing is so unpredictable that one case becomes hundreds very quickly. So even you don't know what's coming around the corner and watching, I, I was on a lunch break and was happened to turn on the news and saw the South Australian press conference and just the tone of the premier, the tone of their chief health officer, the, the sense of urgency to it all just opened up another wound. And I was like, oh, I feel for them. Like you say, it's six days, but is it really six days? And just that feeling of, you know, these guys have, basically been living almost a normal life for eight months. Mm. So it's like, whereas, you know, in Victoria, we're like, oh yeah, six days. Mm. It's, that'll be fine. You can do that standing in your head. But it's it's not, as I said before, everyone's experience is valid and everyone's experience through this, we have to acknowledge because we have never lived through anything like this before. So I would say to anyone listening who's giving themselves a hard time, particularly about going back into the world and, oh, I should be happier than I am or I should be calmer than I am because things are opening up. Like it's perfectly natural and normal to feel unsettled and to allow yourself to take the time that you need to feel the depths of everything we've gone through because it's a lot. Mm. I should say as well that by virtue of how these podcasts are edited, this one will be released a week from the day that we're recording. So this was, is technically speaking, it will be after the six days that South Australia is meant to be in lockdown, you know, has been proposed to be finished. Whether or not it will be finished by then, it remains to be seen. We'll know, I suppose, by the time this podcast goes up. Uh, you may well be out of lockdown, which would be great. But all still valid advice because I think that for the foreseeable future, we will be moving in and out of these states and we'll have to adjust accordingly. And advice that, you know, is offered today will be relevant in perpetuity because of that. 
Jill, I want to talk to you about your first book, High Sobriety, <laughs> and about your, I guess, journey is one of those words that is often sneered at, but I wonder if that's because it's most often used by women. So your journey with sobriety, moving in and out of it, and now you are sober and you you talk about sobriety and you also refreshingly, I think, talk about sobriety in a way that acknowledges that it's not always easy, mm. you know, as opposed to some kind of wellness sobriety voices that emphasise only the benefits of mm. it. Yeah, it's been, it has been quite a ride, the whole sobriety thing. So I grew up in Scotland, you know, in a country where teetotalism is a crime punishable by death. You know, it's not, it's not part of our national DNA and moved to Australia in my mid-twenties to a country that is equally enamoured with uh, drinking. And having been a journalist for 20 years, that's a very hard drinking culture. And it's just part of what I did was got drunk every weekend and often during the week. And I was working for The Age and I was a health reporter and I was winning awards for my, you know, award-winning binge drinking series about Australia's um, alcohol problem. And, you know, during the week I was writing about that culture and Australia's binge drinking problem and at the weekends I was writing myself off and that was kind of the premise of the book. Like it wasn't intended to be a book, it was – I decided to stop drinking for three months because it was heading into my 35th birthday and I thought I can't continue to drink like I did when I was a teenager and in my early 20s and I was just starting to really feel the mental health impacts of it. I was starting to have panic attacks again and I just thought this is not good and so I decided to take three months off. Um, At the end of the three months I wrote a big piece on my sobriety for the Sunday age, took up, you know, a whole page in a broadsheet paper and just went off. It was like, you know, all the things I'd written over my career, it was the thing that got the biggest response and from that I was offered a book deal and said, like, you know, if you continue for another nine months there's a book in this and so I got offered my first book deal and walked out of the publisher's office and just wanted to go and get drunk to celebrate, but I couldn't because I'd just written a, signed a contract to not drink for another nine months. So I wrote High Sobriety and just really explored my own, why I drink and and then looked at the wider culture, both back in Scotland and here, which are very similar and looking at all the reasons that we think we need alcohol that we often don't. And it was really illuminating and really rewarding. And of the three books I've written, it's the one that people still to this day are emailing me about and talking about their own kind of relationship with alcohol. And I went back to drinking after the year, uh, sort of much more moderately, much more mindfully. But then as the years kind of went by, the same habits crept in and I had a pretty serious breakdown, which my psychologist later rebranded as a breakthrough, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, in 2014-15, which led to my memoir, Happy Never After, writing about that. And Since then, I've noticed that I could no longer ignore the correlation between my anxiety going completely off the rails and my big nights of drinking. Like it was just, the correlation was so stark and it was really becoming, you know, the anxiety, you know, the hangover anxiety where you just wake up Mm. in a world of shame and regret and every decision you've ever made in your life is sort of playing in a technicolor horror show in your head and and my heart is racing and my everything, all the reasons that I'd stopped drinking for originally had kind of been amplified and I, so I decided to stop. And so it's been nearly 18 months since I stopped drinking. And this time I don't know if I'll go back. Like I just can't imagine how I can have alcohol in my life and be mentally well, because I'm not a kind of 
two glasses of wine with dinner kind of gal. I'm all all in and uh, I've tried moderation. I'm really bad at it and most people are because it's a very addictive drug. So it's I think there's a lot of shame around people not being able to stop at one or two. But if you read, um, there's a book called This Naked Mind by Annie Grace who looks into like why it's really hard for us to stop at one or two and that we're all kind of on a path to addiction of some sorts. And I thought that, that was quite reassuring to know that, you know, there's no, it's not some sort of moral failing on my part that I, I find it hard to stop at one or two. And particularly if you have friendship circles where that is kind of the norm um, as I do. So yeah, it's been interesting and it's been really challenging. I have to say coming out of lockdown to not drink, like it's the most I've felt like a drink in mm-hmm. a long time because the narrative, obviously the whole kind of, it's very amusing that Dan Andrews is like, you know, get on the beers has been the, the narrative and we're all, all the journals like, can we get on the beers yet? And that's been the sort of story down here in Victoria. And when you don't drink, how do you mark the end of something like that? Mm. But at the same time, I do think we need to examine in South Australia, for example, and the same happened in Melbourne and all over the country, but when the lockdown was announced the other day, there was a bottle shop in South Australia that where a journal went there and they said that normally they would make $3,000 and they'd made $35,000 in that one day. And I, I just tweeted saying, you know, like when, when we stop having a lull at the kind of get on the beers narrative of this pandemic, we really need to talk about Australia's drinking problem because it's real and we are one of the per capita highest drinking nations in the world. And I think what is particularly problematic is the idea that the way that you deal with your trauma is to drink. That is what worries me the most because lots of people can drink and drink safely and not have any of the consequences that I've had, but a lot of people can't. And I think a lot of people drink not realizing that they drink to cope with anxiety, not realizing that it might actually be making it worse. Mm. And also something like that is usually, I mean, racing to the bottle shops. And I'm sure I've participated in this kind of sort of cheering on, the cheer squad of it. But something like that is often responded to in Australian narratives of itself as like, oh, so bloody Australian, isn't it? Yeah, people are really proud of it, right? Look at us. Yeah, look at us. I'm surprised how few people understand the link between anxiety and alcohol what it actually does in your brain. Like I wrote a piece for Beyond Blue about anxiety where we actually describe what's happening in the brain. You know, like you feel like there's different receptors in the brain and it releases all that kind of warm and fuzzy feeling and you've had the first few drinks. But what then happens is your brain tries to overcompensate for that and it sort of sends out all these chemicals that create a lot lot of agitation. So when you wake up with a hangover and you feel really anxious, that's not a coincidence. That's not happening by accident. That is your brain trying to right itself because it feels there's a chemical storm happening. And that's why it can be really difficult if you struggle with anxiety to get caught in that cycle of sort Mm. of drinking to cope. And then the hangovers are so bad that you drink more. Mm. You know, and that was certainly the case for me. But you know, as you said earlier, I think like I'm getting better at it, but I, I miss the kind of silliness of, of drinking and the spontaneity of it and the not knowing where the night's going to go. But then for me, I think about where did those nights invariably end up and it was never really good. It never really ended mm. well for me. And the first few drinks were always fun, but then I'd, you know. There's something about, because you and I have talked about this before, mm. if it's not clear to people listening, Jill and I are friends. So mm. we've, you know, discussed a lot of this stuff privately as well. But we've talked before about, you know, I drink and I would categorise myself as someone who has a troubling relationship with alcohol, yet 
I think one of the problems is that in society we think of alcoholics and non-alcoholics mm. and people think of alcoholics and they have a very Hollywood kind of picture Throwing of paper what they're... paper bag, that, drinking vodka yeah, for breakfast. you know, yeah, waking up and slugging from the beer that's on the nightstand table and not being able to make it through the day without sipping hard liquor, which is not me, mm. yet I have a very dependent relationship with alcohol that is partly about... I think, as you said, that anxiety feedback loop, Mm. you know, calming the anxiety and then waking up and having to deal with the anxiety, so having some more drinks that night, being unable to stop at one or two glasses. So I said on my Instagram the other day that I can easily put away a bottle of wine a night Mm. and I'm not ashamed of that but I'm not proud of it either. Mm. Like, And it is sometimes something that I think I should have some alcohol-free days and I guess on some level it concerns me that, even though I, I've gone four days without alcohol this week with no problem. Mm. Once I start doing it, it's fine. But it concerns me that thinking about doing it has a tinge of fear around it. What will I do without the alcohol? And also more importantly, who will I be, who will without I be? the alcohol? Yeah, that's who will I be it? without it? And I relate that a lot to the, how I felt when I quit smoking was that smoking in a different way gave me some sense of myself that was a construct based on what I'd seen I suppose growing up as, you know, my parents both smoked, you know, I'm 39. So when we were growing up, people in movies smoked all the time and it was cool. Whereas now, I mean, not, smoking is it's not easy to give up. It's a very hard drug to give up as I know I've done that in the past. But it's not socially acceptable to smoke really no. anymore. And all all of our legislation and makes it difficult makes it, to smoke. Makes it difficult to smoke, which changes the culture mm. around it. With drinking that we're that's the opposite. You know, it's mm. it's the fact that people are lining up to bottle shops and alcohol is considered an essential service. It says a lot about the way that we use it. And I think, as you said, it's not just about well, for me, I stopped drinking the first time because I the thought of I met Chris Rain, who runs um, a charity called Hello Sunday Morning, which is a really great place to go if you want to just think about you know, it's not a temperance movement, it's not an abstinence movement, it's just like helps you to reduce or stop for a period of time. And he was a very fledgling organisation at the time and I interviewed him for The Age and he said, why don't you give it a go? And I just laughed and said, like, well, no, I'm a journalist and I'm Scottish and I'm Australian and, and he said all of those things he's heard all before, like it doesn't matter what job people are in, they're like, oh, I'm a nurse or I'm a teacher, like everyone's got a drinking culture attached to it and it's like it's not the industry, it's us as a nation mm. and it's our and individually. And the thought... When I thought about not drinking for three months, which now to me just doesn't seem like anything, it scared the shit out of me and that's when I knew I had to do it because Mm -hmm. I was like, why does it terrify me? And it comes back to, as you say, who are you without it? And I think that's the thing that I still haven't quite reconciled and I'm really working on. And as I say, I'm getting better at it. The more that I'm stronger in myself and understanding who I am and loving myself and you know, really getting to the true self that's hidden beneath all those layers of anxiety and drinking, that I'm less worried about who I am without it. But there is that sense of, you know, like you and I have been friends and I think most of the time that we've become close, I haven't drunk and we've never had those kind of like crazy nights together. And I think like, well, would I be more bonded with Clem if we sat and talked shit till four in the morning? And so I've tried my very best to be the person. What are the things that I do when I'm drinking that I can't do sober. And and Mm. for me, it comes back to, well, I want to be able to tell the people that I love how I feel. And so I've made a really conscious effort to do that sober because it's actually 
there's more of a connection there when you're saying it to someone in the cold light of day and they know when they look mm. in your eyes that you mean it and it's not just because you're at the bottom of a bottle of wine and you might not remember it the next day. I've tried to do that as much as possible and I've tried to sort of separate me, Jill Stark, Starkers, the party girl, from I'm still me and, yeah, it's difficult because you think that you need to have alcohol to be fun and and that is a narrative that's actually reinforced when you go out into the world and the first night I went for dinner with five girlfriends on the week that lockdown was lifted in Melbourne and I one of my friends is pregnant and I wasn't drinking so there's two out of the five not drinking and I called the restaurant to ask if I could bring my own non-alcoholic wine because they didn't have any on the menu and I just wanted to drink wine in a in a nice glass you know after mm. four and a half months of lockdown and we got there and the waitress sort of brought the real wine from my three friends and she said how many glasses and we said three she said and she looked at me and my other friend and said oh that's right you two are being punished <laughs> and and I was like well I, I wasn't until now but mm. and then I just thought you know why would you make your customers feel like this like this is the problem that we see sobriety as deprivation we see it as a lack of something mm. well this kind of speaks to as well when you say who will I be without alcohol there's another question there and that is who will people think I am without alcohol? And I think that that's a huge pressure for people as well, particularly in a country like Australia, that the idea that if you don't drink, sobriety seems to, from my limited and wholly anecdotal experience, sobriety in a country like America seems to be far more widespread and more acceptable. And probably there's more alcohol-free options on menus. But here, I feel like if you say to people that you don't drink or even I'm not drinking tonight, there's always this kind of... You do get, you get challenged, you get tested. I mean, in Europe, for example, like places like Spain in particular, non-alcoholic beer is so common. Like you can get it on tap in most pubs. Like now, if that was the case here, it would be more normalized. And we're starting to see a rise in non-alcoholic drinks, but there's still the culture, as you say, of like questioning someone when they don't drink. And I think for me, and this is something that I explore very much in my second book in Happy Never After is sobriety makes my underlying emotional issues more challenging, but also it makes them much more rewarding. And what I mean by that is, so one of my kind of core issues that I've excavated in therapy is this sort of fear of abandonment and feeling like I don't belong. And, you know, I was bullied quite a lot in high school and there were some issues in childhood that led to this kind of core wound in me. And and I've worked really hard on that. Then then you actively choose to be sober and put yourself outside of the norm and put yourself mm. outside of a group. And so I've got a group of eight friends or mostly former uh, journos or former journos who we all go out together and go on holidays together and have a, have a group dynamic. And I'm the only one now who doesn't drink in that. And it's hard. Like it's, it's not that I'm not close to my friends anymore, but it's changed. It's definitely changed the, the dynamic. So I think, I think that's something to be conscious of is that why are you drinking? And if I'm drinking to feel like I belong, then that is really problematic. And so I don't do that anymore. And, and when I was going through this sort of get on the beers narrative and thinking, oh, it's going to be really hard to come out of lockdown and not drink, I sort of had to journal about why. And it all came back to that. It all came back to, well, I need to belong and I need to be part of this kind of celebration and I'm on the outer. And so I've just worked on that rather than, because I can feel alone with a glass in my hand. You know, mm. I can feel alone at the bottom of a bottle of wine it's not the answer for me personally. It's not the answer to that sense of longing and loss and abandonment and need to be close to people. Like mm. wine and beer is not going to fix that for me. 
So just before we get to the questions from Little Sisters, Jill, if there is anyone listening, as I'm sure there are, who has either recently decided to stop drinking or is interested in exploring sobriety and is possibly, probably, let's be honest, experiencing some fear over what that means and some trepidation, what advice would you offer them about how they can go about that and what words of reassurance would you provide to them? For me, sobriety has been the most rewarding thing I've ever done. It's been the best, other than many years of deep dive therapy, it's been the most effective, helpful thing I've done for my mental health. And I think one of the reasons that we drink is because, or the reason that we eat too much food or we use drugs or use alcohol um, or sex or shopping or whatever it is, is we're trying to numb something. We're trying to not feel something. We're trying to avoid wounds from the past that are still affecting us in the current day. And so I think it's scary to stop, to take that away is scary, but know that when you do, and when you find, when you peel back those layers, I get teary thinking about this, Mm -hmm. but like a friend of mine at that same girl's dinner the other night where I was told that I was being punished for not drinking. And I had a private conversation with one of the girls at the table and I just said, oh, it's really hard to not drink when I get things like that. And she said, you know what though? She said, in all the years I've known you, (laughs) she said, I've never seen you with such a strong sense of self. She said, you know who you are and you've worked bloody hard for that. Don't give it up just because you feel you need to be part of a group. She's like, you're already part of our group, you know? And I just think... That's what I would say. It's not always easy and you're swimming against the tide, but what you find out about yourself when you take that crutch away is it's incredible and you realise that you have strength and reserves and resilience that you didn't know you had. So if you're thinking about it, I would say, you know, if you, if you really think that you've got a, a proper addiction problem, then going cold turkey is probably not a good idea and you probably need to seek some professional support. But if you're just someone who's, who's drinking in a way that you, you're finding is not particularly helpful for you, then I would say go to somewhere like Hello Sunday Morning and look at their website and there's it's just a community of people going through the same thing and it's really supportive and it's non-judgmental and there's no shame and there's no kind of, it's not a temperance movement, it's not anything like that. So who am I without alcohol? Well, you actually find out without alcohol who you really are and that's that can be confronting and scary but oh my god it can be so fulfilling mm. and your relationships can be deeper and more connected and you wake up in the morning without a hangover and not having to look at your phone and see who you called or texted is for me is really rewarding so yeah <laughs> that's a plus not having that moment of shame and shock when you wake up on a Saturday or Sunday morning. Thank you so much for sharing what can be incredibly vulnerable feelings and I guess, you know, self lessons as well. I really appreciate it. I know that people will appreciate it too. Should we get to the questions? Yeah, let's do it. Please note my disclaimer in very big flashing lights that neither I nor Jill are doctors, counsellors or professionally trained sex therapists. We're just two women who've got a little thing called life experience and who both are very, very glad to be out of lockdown now. (laughs) Confident and happy asks, I'm feeling confident and happy about where I am at personally, and I've decided to give dating a go again. A bit about me. I'm 34. I'm a full-time employee, mother of a nine and seven-year-old, and I have a full schedule by choice. I've been online dating, chatting with a few, and have met two people. 
The second person has taken up a lot of my idle thoughts as an interesting and calm person to be around. We've met up five to six times. I want to know how I can settle myself down a little from thinking about him and remain focused on more important things. I feel like because it's been some time that I'm overreacting slightly. This might be a generic question, but I'm genuinely looking for some tools to stay level and grounded. Jill Stark. (laughs) Well, yeah, very common experience, I think. I mean, the first thing I'd say is I think you really need to separate your value as a human from the approval of this person or any person. And I think that's that's a sort of trap that that I've fallen to in the past is that, you know, if this person doesn't turn out to like me the way that I want him to, then I'm sort of diminished mm. in my value and that's just not, not the case. So I think, you know, really separating those two things out. The other thing in terms of grounding techniques, and I don't know if you've tried this, Clem, but I use this a lot for my anxiety. And I think if you're looking as uh, confident and happy is, confident and happy? Mm-hmm. Confident and happy is to not obsess and focus on on this person is to try a grounding technique, which is called the 54321 grounding technique. Have you, have you tried I haven't that? heard of this, but I'm excited to find yeah, out. So when I'm really anxious or really spinning out and trying to stop myself from texting a friend something ridiculous or trying to not go down a rabbit hole of anxiety, to take a breath. So it's 54321. So first it's five things that you can see. So you're looking around and I'm looking in Clem's kitchen. I can see a beautiful picture of her son. I can see um, the microphones. Like, just, so it's, it's a way to ground yourself back in the present. So you, so you name, you look around, five things you can see and then four things that you can touch. And that's a really important one because often if you're spinning out, you're kind of not present. You're in the future. You're thinking about what mm. might happen. So I do this a lot if I'm feeling panic. What can you touch so you can feel your the ground beneath your feet, feel your hair against your ear, you know, that sort of thing. So four things you can touch. Three things you can hear. Two things you can smell. So it might be, you know, the coffee sitting on the stove or you can smell grass being cut outside. And then one thing that you can taste. Mm-hmm. So it could be the toothpaste, you've just brushed your teeth, whatever that might be. So that's a grounding technique that I use that can be that bring you back to the present and stop whatever train of thought you're spiraling mm. into. Mm. I've never used that grounding technique, but I I read about it recently. Actually, now that you've explained it, I I am slightly familiar with it, and I'm excited to use it the next time I feel like I'm about <laughs> to have a panic attack. I use the binaural therapy mm. technique for which, for anyone listening, I'm not affiliated with this psychologist at all. I just really love this app. I use the anxiety release app by Mark Grant. I've talked about it before and I've linked it before on my Instagram. I will link it again in the liner notes for this show. It's a really effective tool to bring you back to the present and to, I mean, I'm probably explaining this incorrectly, but for me, it feels like it distracts me from the panic that I'm feeling and has some kind of spooky effect on my body that totally calms me down. So yeah, I think that that's really good advice for those moments when your thoughts may be spiraling into panic and also maybe spiraling as in the case of this little sister spiraling into fantasy which we mm. all indulge in it seems to me what i really loved about this question was that it seems to me that she knows the risk of allowing yourself to become too overwhelmed by romantic possibility she's feeling these impulses to fantasize and project about the what ifs and the maybes and the kind of rom-com narrative that we've been fed about this particular person that she's seen five or six times. And she's very sensibly, I think, 
said, I have a very full life and I have all of these responsibilities and I don't want to become derailed from those things by something that ultimately I may just be creating a narrative about that's not real or that might break my heart. No one wants a broken heart. I th- yeah, but I think one of the other things I'd say is I think you're right in as much as she is trying to bring back some rationale and trying to keep grounded and, and not, mm. not get ahead of herself. But I think another helpful thing that I've that my psychologist often talks to me about is when you're feeling, so in this particular instance it's a little bit of anxiety around, oh, I don't want to go there. Why am, I, why am I thinking about this person so much? How can I sort of distract myself? So rather than just say to yourself, oh, I'm really anxious by this or I'm really distracted by this, or, you need to be more specific. So if you can actually drill down underneath that and name it. So for me, it's like just saying I'm anxious doesn't help me address the problem. It's too amorphous. So you need to actually name it. So sort of example, like I was a little bit anxious about coming here today, Clem, and I had to think about why. And it's like, what am I anxious about? Oh, underneath it, because what if I fuck this up? I might be a failure. So in Confident and Happy's case, maybe it's what's underneath this anxiety? Is it, well, if it doesn't work out with this person, I'm unlovable or, you know, maybe mm. I will. This is my last chance. This is my last chance or or I don't want to lose my independence. You know, what what is it underneath the feeling of agitation and anxiety? If you can mm. actually name it, it helps you to address it rather than mm. just having this kind of free-floating feeling of something's not quite right, but not being able to name it. And if you can name it, you can actually, well, so name it to tame it, right? But you can actually, you can, you can say, mm. oh, I'm anxious about this. Oh, I'm anxious about, well, I'm going to end up alone. Well, what's the actual evidence for that? Mm. Mm. Firstly, what I will say is that if it reassures you in any way, I feel sick with anxiety every week before I record these, (laughs) terrified that I'm going to fuck it up, that I'm going to ask the wrong questions, that the person who has been so gracious to agree to come on the podcast will be like, well, she fucking sucks at this. Like the parade of anxiety is a constant background in my life, as you know. It doesn't matter how kind of proficient, I guess, you become at hiding it or how practiced you become at the things you're actually doing, there's still always that prickling sense each time you do it. I mean, it's like you you and I were talking about running before because I've started running. (laughs) It's that same feeling, I think, as when you decide to do any form of exercise or you decide to go for a run or whatever it might be that you're like, I don't want to do this. I hate the idea of doing this. This scares me. I feel like if I do this if I quit halfway through, then I'm a big failure. What does that say about me? Yeah. And also one of the things that I feel sometimes when I'm running, the bad brain kicks in and says, if you finish this run, you're going to have to go on another one because <laughs> otherwise then you quit. And that's kind of scary too. So relating all of that to the feeling of getting back into the dating game, mm. I actually see a lot of correlations because, uh, you know, what you're saying, like, what's the anxiety? Well, if this doesn't work out, then I'm a big failure or I'm unlovable. Mm. Or I mean, I felt all of those things. Like if things don't work out, I feel like, well, it's clearly 100% a reflection on me. He didn't like me ultimately because I'm disgusting or I'm boring or the worst thing. Once he got to know me, he thought, mm, it's not as interesting as I thought she'd be. Well, I think it's the thing if you unpack what's going on underneath. And this is after six years of very intensive therapy with an amazing psychologist. I can say that I probably know myself better than I ever have. And and she will always say to me, if you're reacting, particularly if you're reacting into kind of disproportionately, disproportionate emotional reactions are 
never about what's happening in that moment. They're always about something from your past. They're always about a greater fear. They're always about a bigger picture stuff. And I'm not suggesting that this questioner is having some existential crisis, but I guarantee you if she was to unpick what is this, why am I, the fact that she wanted to write this question to you suggests that there's something really troubling for her about this situation. And I would just recommend trying to sit down with a notepad and journal about it and go, what just, you know, freehand, don't think about it, just stream of consciousness, write what comes into your head and you might get an answer which is like, oh, I'm terrified if this doesn't work out that I will be alone or or the opposite, I'm terrified if it does work out then I will lose my, my independence yeah, my and who am I and what's, you know, what what is it? If you can drill down into the anxiety and find out and name it, then you can actually rationalise and speak to those fears. I get the sense I could be wrong about this, but I think that one thing she may be asking as well, and I relate to this too, is that she wants to be able to pull back a little bit from, you know, rolling the boulder down the hill and Mm. having it build up too much speed on her ideas of what might happen because she doesn't want to fuck it up, you know, that she likes this person. And I got the sense that there is something in there where she wants to maintain rationality about it, not just to protect herself, but also because she doesn't want to spoil it. But isn't that just, that's a lack of trust in yourself. Oh, sure. I mean, maybe that's my own issues speaking. And I think, yeah, of course, we all get like that. We're like, oh, I'm going to, if I step a foot wrong, then this person's not going to call me back or or whatever Mm. it might be. But yeah, if it's a lack of trust in yourself, then like back yourself and know that if Mm. this person decides that they don't want to continue things, it's probably not about you. If I can offer some practical advice as opposed to mental health care techniques as someone who did get back into the dating game after a long time last year and who probably in the beginning stages of it exhibited some of the same things, you know, like grew a little bit too excited about some of the people that I was seeing or a little bit too forward thinking about what could happen. That something I've learned in that 18 months of being single again is that dating like anything is a practice and that self-care is required in it, but also practicing your response to people is not something that you just learn overnight. You kind of have to go through a few experiences where you do feel like, well, maybe I push things too fast or maybe I, maybe I fantasized too big about what this could be. And once you've kind of been bruised a little bit, and I'm not suggesting, you know, go out and be hurt by a number of people and then you'll be fine. But if you have, there's nothing to fear about being bruised in that way because you will survive it. But also like anything, I mean, it will teach you the practice of it, you know. So now my approach to dating is a lot more circumspect than when I re-entered it. And I was so excited to kind of explore all of these things that, you know, I'd been in a long-term relationship for seven years and it was exciting. It was like someone dropping me in the middle of a buffet and saying, (laughs) you can eat anything you want. And I was like, but I want more of that. Why Mm. is it run out? Whereas now I I sort of feel like I'm a lot better at prioritising my time, prioritising my responsibilities with my son, prioritising my work, and also just saying to people from the outset, I'm a really busy person and my contact with you may be sporadic and I'm not interested in having a serious relationship with anyone and actually have gotten to the point where I, that is true. I'm not mm. just saying that as some kind of, well, I think that this is what a cool mm. girl would sound like. That's actually true for me. So I feel like approaching it as a practice as opposed to a 
give me the tools and then I will know how to do it is also, also helpful. I think with dating and I'm definitely not an expert on dating by any means. I haven't dated for quite a while, but I think dating by its very nature, it's the feeling of lack of control, right? Because mm. you can, and, and I think if this year has taught us anything, it's how to live with uncertainty. And we don't like that. Our brains are hardwired to crave certainty. Human beings don't like not knowing what's going to happen next. That's why 2020 has been so challenging. But surely I think it's taught us that we have to focus on the things we can control and let go of the things we can't. And in this particular case, you can't control what this person is going yeah. to do or think or feel about you, but you can control how you respond. And as you say, I think that's when self-care becomes really important. And it sounds like they already kind of know that there's a risk of them spinning out. And if you can mm. just sort of put some grounding practices in place, I think that will mm. be calming. I think that's really sensible advice. And I feel like this little sister in particular is already most of the way there to understanding that and with those techniques, hopefully, dear, confident and happy, you will remain confident and happy. And uh, good luck with the dating. It is a lot of fun once you kind of establish exactly what it is that you want. Confused says... I am 35 and back in April I started talking to an ex-colleague who I didn't know well but had seen on social media. I had a lot of respect for him having taken charge of his recovery from an addiction and he constantly challenges himself to try new things. We got chatting over music and ended up having loads in common. He invited me over for dinner one night and it was awesome. We did that a handful of times and then stayed over at each other's places. This is all, for me, relatively slowly over the space of four months. I think we saw each other about five times during that period. In the meantime, we were texting daily, sending each other music like teenagers, compiling a mixtape, sharing art we'd seen or made, daft videos of each other. After nearly five months, he messaged to say that this was never going to be serious for him. He wasn't looking for a relationship, but he was enjoying getting to know me and would like to continue to do so, though it would always be casual. For me, though, it already felt romantic and this was too late for casual, so I thanked him for letting me know and disengaged. This was six weeks ago and I'm still hurt and crying. I'm thinking about him constantly. I know I did the right thing and I know it was never going to work. I know I'm better off without him or anyone. I'm a badass, cool-as-fuck feminist with way more important things to think about. So why am I obsessed with this man? Jill Stark, why is she obsessed with this man? Ugh. I feel this deep into my bones. Me too. (laughs) Also, fuck that guy. Like, it's so discombobulating when you have what you think is genuine intimacy Mm. with someone and... And they let you think that. Yeah, and then it goes on and then it's like they've been gaslighting you the whole time and you just imagined this intimacy and you're like, I don't... There's no one else in my life that I spend this much time texting and sharing with. And then it's it just, yeah, I, so I really feel for that, you. Yeah, I that think, is a relationship. Of course. It makes your head spin. And I think part of, of what happens with the reason that you're feeling so devastated is it, it's the anticipation and the expectation that we get caught up in with new relationships. And you can't help but sort of imagine your future. And I think what, what I would say, apart from as you said, claim fuck this guy. I think it's really important to let yourself feel disappointed, to feel even a sense of grief about an imagined future that you had with this person that is no longer going to be there. And the other thing I'd say is 
a lot of the language that you used in your question was really hard to hear because it's so self-critical. Like, why do I feel like this? You know, what, what is wrong with me kind of was the implication. Like, yeah, I know you're a badass feminist and that's great, but you're really punishing yourself for feeling really valid feelings. Um, there's a, a meditation teacher I listen to called Tara Brach, who she talks about the second arrow and it's something they talk about in Buddhist circles. So the first arrow is when we feel pain of some description. So in this situation, the first arrow that gets fired at us is the disappointment of someone who we invested in and we saw a future with not being who we thought they were. The second arrow is the one that we fired ourselves. Mm. And that's the pain of self-recrimination, of shame, of guilt, of self-judgment. Why am I like this? Why am I obsessed with this guy? Which is so much more piercing. Which is so much more painful and unnecessary Mm. (laughs) because we're firing it at ourselves. Mm. So that would be my advice is if you can stop before the second arrow is fired and feel the pain of the first arrow, feel the very real pain and grief of that first arrow, but don't compound it by turning the arrow on yourself. So hard not it's to so do that hard, though. But I think you've got to start from a place of self-compassion mm. and realize that you haven't done anything wrong. You haven't mis- mm. misunderstood this. You haven't. And who knows with this person, they have a, a history of addiction. That's a really complex, a complex place to be. Perhaps he has things going on that he hasn't worked through, I'm not making excuses for, for the behavior. But I, I do think that there perhaps there's always more going on than meets the eye and that's a hard thing to sit with when you're on the end of it. But, yeah, just be kind to yourself. I know it sounds really trite but it's so important. Mm. I've really, really felt for you, little sister, reading this because, I mean, it is gaslighting. His past struggles and successes overcoming addiction aside, great, good for him, congratulations. But he's hurting people and I think that, he's done it in a deliberate way. I mean, I don't think that you can engage with someone on that emotional level, on that intimate level, and not know what you're doing. You don't send mixtapes to someone if you don't want to have a relationship with them. You do send mixtapes to someone if you don't want to have a relationship with them, but you want them to think that you want to have a relationship with them. He is getting, or he is approaching this as getting all of the emotional benefits of a relationship without ever actually having to be present himself, provide anything beyond what he desires when he desires it. And look, that's fine, but be honest about that from the outset. Say, I just want to have an internet girlfriend and I want to text you sometimes, but I don't want it to just be about nudes. I feel like he's willfully led you down the garden path on this. And this is something that probably a lot of us can relate to, that you feel like you're building up intimacy with someone. And the fact that you've only seen each other a handful of times and and obviously from the sounds of it only had physical intimacy a few times makes all that other stuff so much more compelling and more important. And the other intimacy and and sharing vulnerability and then feeling that that vulnerability has kind of been used against you is, but don't let, don't, don't let that become. They could have fucked a hundred times during this five month period and never spoken Mm. Text-wise, yeah, intimacy, and she would feel less close the, to him. The intimacy than now. is not the, not the physical intimacy; it's all no, yeah, exactly. the, the the talking and the sharing and and all of that. And I, I've had that experience several times where I'm just like, I thought we had something and we mm. didn't. And this sort of emotional dependency that the person has on you, yeah, that's something I would say is that perhaps you have outgrown your usefulness, which is a really harsh thing to say. But people who do tend to to use people. We'll move on when 
they feel... And gaslight someone else. Yeah, and, and for whatever reason, he doesn't feel able to commit to anything bigger. I mean, it's just, yeah, it's so hard. But but even that, I feel like, you know, not to be too sort of pointy about language, when we say things to ourselves like, you know, because this is also how patriarchy has conditioned us to frame men's feelings, he doesn't feel able to commit to something. It triggers in me that response of years and years of going, oh, well, I need to fix him then. Mm. And I think that it's a choice that he's making. And I'm going to recommend again, I recommended it in last week's podcast and I'm going to recommend it again and I will link it again in the liner notes of this one. Tracy Egan Morrissey's article, The Emotional Conquistador is the New Sexual Conquistador. And she wrote it over 10 years ago and it is as relevant, if not more so today. And it basically posits that the sexual revolution provided women with the opportunity to go out and have sex the way that they wanted to with whomever they wanted to. And yes, of course, we still deal with slut shaming and, you know, prudishness. But essentially speaking, men in the world know that it's not that difficult to get women to sleep with them because women want sex too. So the new challenge then has become instead of sexually conquering women, it has become emotionally Mm. conquering them and getting us to a point where we feel like we're we're really building something with someone. We're building an intimate emotional connection. They are letting us in past the drawbridge. And then we get to the drawbridge, which they've so like over a course of, in this case, five months, they've wheeled it down slowly, slowly inviting her in. And she's just gotten to the point where she's about to step on and he's yanked it right back up and said, oh, actually, I'm not I'm not really interested in a relationship, but you can stand out there and we can keep talking about my feelings. Do you think that the great thing about this little sister's question is that she ended this. She yes. she understands what's going on here. And so I think that's something you should be immensely proud of. And I think the question was more about why am I still feeling like this? And I think that's where an element of self-compassion has to mm. come in because you understand this is not your fault. You understand that this this man has behaved in a in an emotionally manipulative way. Your question is around why is the pain so painful? Mm. <laughs> and I think that's where you just have to let yourself feel it and acknowledge that there's a grief there and it will pass if you give yourself time and, and don't, mm. as I say, shoot that second arrow at yourself. Yeah, I thought that too. I really wanted to make a specific point of congratulating her mm. for not allowing him to co-opt her into any kind of more emotional exchange that she didn't want. I thought that that was great because there've been times when I, I don't know if I would have been strong enough to lay that boundary down. So I think that that, that you are a fucking badass, cool as fuck feminist, but you feel this way because you're also a human and you have emotions and you have an emotional spectrum that someone intentionally or not exploited and made you feel like something was happening and then told, you know, that thing that I worked so hard to make you feel like was happening was actually not happening. And so you feel confused. You feel like you can't trust your instincts and you also feel really, really hurt. And I think that as Jill said, those are incredibly valid hurts to have and and incredibly valid emotions to have. And you just have to kind of ride them out. Mm. And, And I think that's great advice. You know, don't shoot that second arrow at yourself, even though you may be shooting it at yourself every day. Maybe the trick is to try and work at... Maybe every second day. Yeah, <laughs> until you start can, with every second yeah. day and then eventually just the arrow's not there anymore. But I feel for you and I think that a lot of people listening to this will have had an exactly similar experience. So I feel for all of them too. <laughs> 
Okay, last question of the week. This one comes from Tired Friend. I have a friend who has been laying the groundwork for an affair for the last few months, and I am tired. She has been speaking to an ex now for months. Speaking has become sexting. She is very excited about it and likes to share this with me. This man has a long-term girlfriend who I feel my friend likes to conveniently forget when discussing with me. I will gently raise it, but I find it hard as I feel like a very unwilling participant in this situation. I just don't know how to challenge it without hurting her. I also feel a bit let down because she is a self-described feminist and I thought our values were the same, but I feel like this is an inherently unfeminist position to participate in an action that knowingly causes harm to another woman. I know that it is his choice at the end of the day and I don't feel he is a hapless man being tempted. Rather, he too feels entitled to cause this harm. I have flagged with her to potentially tell this woman and expose him, but she refuses, which feels like further humiliation to this stranger. It feels weird to be more on the side of a woman I don't even know than a close friend, but I feel a bit unsure of what to even do. Do I tell her? Do I talk my friend into sense? Or do I just step away and acknowledge that some people do shitty things? Oh, this is a tough one, isn't it? I mean, I haven't had this exact situation, but I have had situations with friends where they are acting in ways that perhaps are not in line with my own moral, moral compass. And and it's challenging because you think, well, I really love this person. I thought that they wouldn't do something like this. And I've kind of learned the hard way that when you moralize and judge your friends, it doesn't end well. And you have to come at it from a position of your own values. And I think if this tired friend's friend was asking her to lie or be complicit in this affair, that's when you could really push back very strongly. But mm-hmm. that's not the case here. And I, and I think we have to live by our own values. And that doesn't mean that everyone else is going to act in exactly the same way. And I also think that we can be very black and white in our thinking if someone's either good or they're bad. Sometimes their behavior can be bad. It does not make them a bad person. And we don't know for what reasons this the friend of the friend is engaging in this behavior, what's going on for her, what's what she's lacking, what she's looking for, what hurt she's kind of going through. Uh, it's not to ex- excuse an affair, but it's more just things are more complex often than, than mm. they look. So I think coming at it from a position of care and I think if you don't like talking about it, if she's bringing it up and she's chatting about how, she, how excited she is by this relationship that she's building, you can express that you you don't approve without turning into a massive fight or becoming very judgmental. Maybe the way to do it is to ask her how she would feel if someone was cheating on you, her friend, mm. and that you feel uncomfortable but it's her life it's up to her what she's going to do, but you feel uncomfortable about it. And then just try to change the subject. I think you don't want to be the person she comes to mm. for advice on this. Sometimes I think long pauses can be really helpful way, way to express judgment without saying anything. Mm. So if someone is gossiping about someone or telling you something that you find sort of morally um, to be a bit off, it's just to let it sit there for a while and not say anything. And that, that kind of says all you need to say, but yeah, it's very, it's very difficult one because obviously the friendship is important to you, but you feel let down in the way that you feel like maybe you didn't know this person as well as you did. Mm. It is really tricky. And I think that, you know, it's really easy to sit there and, and I have done it myself, sit there in judgment of people who are participating in infidelity. And yet I suppose 
her friend doesn't feel like a bad person and she's probably not a bad person. She's probably been swept up in this sort of romantic fantasy as so many of us can be. And ultimately it's not her relationship. It's his problem and he's the one who's betraying, you know, his partner. He's the one who's humiliating his partner. I'm not saying like it's wonderful to do that to someone else, but I guess for me the problem is more that she's co-opting this tired friend into the narrative. Mm. And I feel like one of the things that tired friend could do is to say, look, you know, the long pauses, as you suggest, is a good idea. But also just say to her, I really don't want to talk about this with you. I think that you can set those boundaries very clearly and say, look, this is your life. I am not going to stand in judgment of you or getting in your way, but I'm not, not comfortable talking about mm. it. Also, I think he's a fucking asshole. <laughs> and I have to say, like, full confession here, when I was very young in my early 20s, I did have an affair with a man who was in a long-term relationship and my best friend back in Scotland at the time knew about it and she was so uncomfortable and she was very supportive of me because she knew that I was desperately in need of someone to mm. love me and that was, you know, I just had, did not know myself at all and was just clinging mm. to any man that would come along even if he was throwing me scraps. And the only time where she really lost it with me was, was we ended up in the pub with the man and his partner mm. and it wasn't intentional but we were all there and she sat around the table and she was like, don't ever fucking do that to me again because she felt like she was complicit in this lie. And, you know, that was 20 years ago and I... Hopefully my behaviour has improved since then, but am I a bad, evil person for having done that? It's not something I'm proud of and I I think we can get too caught up in black and white absolute thinking of someone mm. is, someone's behaviour is indicative of 100% who they are and what they stand for. And, yeah, I mean, I would have that conversation with her, like why do you feel the need to be with someone who's already with someone else? Like what... Mm. If, if what's this stoking yeah, in you? Yeah, what is going on for you? And they come at it from a place of compassion. Like I'm, I want more for you than this. I want mm. you to be in a relationship with someone who's fully with you, and also someone who someone who's not going to lie, someone who isn't who doesn't think that that's an okay thing well, to do to also, someone. If you're if you're beginning a relationship with someone from a position of infidelity, what's to say he's not going to do that oh, to you? Totally. I mean, that that's not a good sign for the fact that he is willing. And as you say most of the kind of moral weight falls on his shoulders mm. and if he's willing to lie to his partner to be with his ex-partner pick a teammate like mm. make a decision you can't have both ways so yeah I think it's really tricky but if I, I would come at it from a position of concern and compassion and if she doesn't respond to that then just say these are my boundaries I don't really want to talk about this yeah, and, you know, disclosure as well, and I've said this on a past episode of the podcast too, in my 20s I've also been involved as the other woman. There's something, I'm not defending it, I'm not proud of it either, I'm not going to like wallow in shame about it. I think that there's something very compelling or there's something that we are taught as women in a patriarchy that is very compelling about the idea of Winning a man over oh, another woman. Absolutely. And the excitement of it. And the Oh, and yeah, he's I, got her at home, but he really wants to be yeah, with she me. She was she was always painted to me as like boring and and she was a drag and she, I was this exciting young kind of like sort of clandestine, you know, mm. having sex at, in the uni bathrooms and stuff and you know And it's very like, intoxicating yeah, to feel like to you're feel the desired yeah. to that level. If you're and this is why I kind of don't necessarily think that 
tired friend's friend is all bad. Like for me, if I look back on that now, what was I looking for? I was looking desperately to have someone give me that full love and attention. And you could say, oh, well, I wasn't getting it because he already had a partner, but it was so the way that he talked to me yeah. and the way that he desired me was like a drug for my issues of abandonment and issues of needing mm. to be loved and needing to be to belong. So I would suspect there's more going on under the surface with tired friends friend than just being a bad person and wanting to have an affair. Yes. I'd be interested as well to know what the circumstances were of their initial breakup. Who instigated it? What has he done that's made it so compelling for her to come back and be co-opted into this situation where he is he is willfully humiliating the woman that, that he publicly claims to love. I mean, he sounds like a dickhead to me, but I know that dickheads can be extremely... Charismatic. Charismatic and addictive. Yes. So to summarise, tired friend, what we would suggest is speaking to her about what it is that she finds compelling about this, letting her know that you you will always support her as your friend but you don't approve of this and you would prefer not to be, I guess, co-opted into it or prefer not to be made complicit in it because it does challenge you and it is uncomfortable and you do feel for this poor unknown woman that is being humiliated. And maybe that will be enough. Maybe thinking about the other woman won't sway her, but maybe thinking about your feelings on it may be enough to have her sit down and have a serious consideration of what it is that's motivating her, what it is that she's getting out of this and why she feels okay with letting this ex-partner use her in this way Mm. and do it in a way that's really disrespectful, not just to a singular woman, but also to her values. But at the end of the day, you can't fix other people. It's no. something that I've learned the hard way. You can't, and invariably when you're trying to fix other people, it says more about you and what you need to be turning that lens inwards rather than why are you obsessed with someone else's behaviour. So, yeah, live by your own values and put boundaries in place. And also, just as a word of warning, prepare for the fact that she may not respond well. She may not respond well and you may have a little fracture for a while. But if this is what you feel strongly about, then you deserve to speak up and say it. You've been listening to The Big Sister Hotline, a weekly advice podcast that delivers no-nonsense words with love from the kind of people you know have your back, your big sisters. You can find us everywhere you listen to good content, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podchasers, Google Podcasts, and you can also listen to all the back episodes there. If you like the show, then please consider rating and reviewing it. And if you enjoy the hotline, you can support the ongoing making of it at my Patreon, which is www.patreon.com forward slash Clementine Ford, where pledges of more than $10 per month receive access to bonus episodes and bonus content too. If you have a question you'd like answered, you can submit it to bigsisterhotline at gmail.com. And don't worry, all submissions are treated as totally anonymous. We're big sisters and we've got your back. I would also like to thank the good folk at Raw Collective who have taken on the monumental task of editing this podcast. I did it valiantly for a long time. I think we can all agree I kind of sucked at it and I'm very, very happy to hand it over to their professional capable hands. Thank you so much for shaping these into something worth listening to. My guest this week has been Jill Stark, a mental health advocate, writer, good friend and fellow walker. Uh, Walking around the (laughs) neighbourhood. 
Jill. Thank you so much for having me. It's been absolutely delightful. One thing I would say about anyone who is re-entering the world after lockdown, which I meant to say early, earlier, is it's okay if you're feeling anxious and weird about it. It's perfectly normal. We've been living in very strange times. Don't be alarmed if you are finding it's a sensory overload. Take it easy. Don't overload yourself. Allow yourself to sleep. <laughs> it's okay to feel tired. Mm. Also, I will put links in where people can purchase your books. I'll put them in, into the liner notes of the episode. Are you working on another book at the moment? <laughs> all these authors who wrote books during lockdown. Not I just me. did not. Um, I've got lots of ideas for books and I'm talking to various people about books, but I have not got one in the pipeline at the moment. But I, I do hope to have one soon. <laughs> and people can follow you on Instagram and Facebook as well and they can check out all of those past episodes of Riding the Riding Corona, the Corona Coaster. Coaster. Yes, um, please DM me if you've got any ideas for what the next Riding the Corona Coaster video should be. I haven't made one for a while because I feel like we were kind of just dealing with coming out of lockdown, but maybe that should be the next one, re-entry syndrome, how to cope with life after lockdown. It's been an absolute pleasure having you come and sit in my kitchen, Jill, and uh, I will also enjoy the pleasure that it is for us to go out to lunch now. It's going to be delightful. Remember, there's no topic too thorny and no question too weird for the Big Sister Hotline. We're here for all the questions you don't want to ask your therapist, especially now that it has to be over Zoom. So contact us instead, the Big Sister Hotline. The phone lines are open. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.